Well, we're starting a new series this morning. Let me first apologize for the traffic jam that was out there. Yeah, that's my fault. I thought this morning that I could fit the six hours I take to cover this material with our fellows into 40 minutes. I was wrong. I will move as fast as I can, but it takes a little time. We're going to walk this morning through the first third of our cover-to-cover series. You can turn to the book of Genesis. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to take you from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to walk you through the complete story of what God has been doing in the history of the human race as told in the pages of your Bible. So as we enter into this challenging series, cover to cover, the whole Bible in three weeks and nine words, you got to start with the why. Why put forth this work? You're going to have to really pay attention. It's a lot of material to cover. Let me explain it from my own life. Um, Before I learned this material... From Brian Fisher, our senior pastor, about 20 years ago. My relationship to the Bible for the first 22 years of my life was kind of like a grab bag. You know, a bag you, you kind of kind of reach in there and try to find something. That's what my quiet times were like. So I'd take this book and I'd turn it to something and I'd try to find something good that I'd like to read. And so, you know, I reach into the grab bag of the Bible one morning and I pull out the story of David and Goliath. That's an awesome story. I like that one. So let's put that on the table. I want that one. And And then I reach back into the bag and I pull one out and, oh, this one is about how Queen Jezebel got eaten by dogs. It's really yucky. I don't want that one so much, so let's throw it over here. And then I reach in and I grab, oh, here's a command. I need those. This is the Ten Commandments of the Mosaic Law. I I like those. Let me live my life by those. I'll put those here. And then I, I reach back in and I pull out Romans. Oh, hey, we're in the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, where Paul says that all those who have believed in Jesus have come to the end of the law. But... Wait a minute, I just put the law there. What, what do I do with these two pieces? How do they fit? I don't have any idea. And so the whole Bible to me was like a disconnected series of stories and commands you pull out of a grab bag. I like to explain it. It was like the Bible was Twitter to me. All these short little things with no relationship between them. I didn't know how to fit it together. And then Brian walked us through, cover to cover, the story of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I discovered that even though there are 66 books, this is actually one story. It is one grand story about God and his work among the human race. One story from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation. It is all about what God is doing in and among us. It's, it's the greatest story ever told. And and not only did I learn this one great story about God and his work in the world, but I began to see how I fit into it. I began to see the Bible as the story of my life, the story of what God has done in the human race that I can enter into that becomes the purpose and the story of my own life. And it changed everything for me. It changed my whole relationship to this book and my relationship to God. And my prayer for each of you over these next three weeks is that God would open your eyes just as he opened mine. That you would discover this one greatest story ever told and see how you fit into it. So I'm going to walk you through the story of the Bible from cover to cover over the next three weeks. There's a lot of material that we have to cover, so I've done something a little unusual. I've made handouts for you. So if you reach, if you're on the edge of an aisle, look under your chair. So the edge of an aisle, there's a stack of handouts. Grab one and pass it down. You will get one handout each week. Each handout will walk you through three chapters of this nine-chapter story, okay? So you're going to get a handout each week. There's blanks to fill in, 
So fill those in as we go. You'll notice that for each of the chapters, there are key passages I have listed out. We will not be able to read all of those key chapters or key scripture in our sermon time. And so my homework for you this week is to take this handout and on your own, go back and read those key passages. Then I have a second bit of homework for you. Turn to the back. You'll notice each week at the bottom or end of the back page, I'm going to give you three reflection questions. We don't have time to cover those in the sermon, so I'm going to ask you to cover them on your own during this week. I want you to reflect on what you're learning. I want you to think about these three questions so that you can go deeper in your walk with the Lord. Now, let me ask, is anybody missing a handout? Kind of hard to know for sure if we got all of them. Raise your hand if you're missing a handout or if your handout only has one side. uh, Raise your hand and I'll get you a new one. Okay, so I'm going to give you a handout each week and walk you through this material. Now, you may notice there's a chart at the top of your material. It looks like this. You'll notice that one thing is not like the others. There is a center to this chart, and that is Jesus. The whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you might have learned that the right answer to every question is Jesus. That's not actually true, but in this case, it is. For the next three weeks, the answer to everything is ultimately Jesus. The whole story is about him. And so what I've done is I've taken all of the story, including Jesus, and I've divided the story into nine chapters. Okay, so it's one story, one novel of nine chapters, and each of those chapters has a one-word title. So you're seeing that on the screen. You're also seeing it over here. You can see how the story of the Bible plays out in nine words. Everything in the Old Testament is the first two diagrams there. So you've got creation, revolt, and promise. That's what we're covering today. The first three chapters. Next week, you'll get Law, King, and Hope. That's the bulk of the Old Testament. Notice that all of that is pointing to Jesus. It's all preparing us for Jesus because he is the big idea of the Bible. He is the the center of the story God is telling us in Scripture. So everything in the Old Testament points to him. Then on the third week, we'll look at Jesus and we'll learn his part of the story and how he's the solution to everything. And then we'll also get the New Testament, which I've divided. New Testament after the Gospels is church and shalom. And it actually looks back at Jesus. It it tells us about what Jesus has done in our lives and what he's going to do in our futures. Okay, so that's where we're headed. The whole Bible in nine words. Today we're going to start in those first three words, creation, revolt, and promise, and we're going to be in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, you can turn there if you're not there already. We're going to begin at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 with the story of creation. So if you'll look with me, let's just read a few of the verses in this chapter. We don't have time for the whole thing. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Now let's skip down. We're going to skip all the next days of creation until we get to the last day. Day, And look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. 
God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 31. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day. Here at the beginning... We learn a lot about creation, and we took all of last week to study this chapter in detail. If you weren't here last week, we spent the whole day talking about just Genesis chapter 1. This is a super controversial chapter of the Bible. People are always wondering, how does it fit with science? What do you do with evolution? How does it fit together? We walked through all of that last week. You can get it on the internet if you missed it. I want to review for you, though. The big, most important part of Genesis chapter 1 as we walked through this chapter is the reality that Genesis 1 is not about how or when the world was made. That's what so many people come to Genesis 1 looking for. Tell me, how did God make the world? How does it fit in with science? When did he make it? How long ago? That's not what this chapter is about. Genesis 1 is about who made it and why. Because those questions matter so much more to your daily life. That's the big idea of Genesis 1. Who made the universe and why he made it? And so we talked about that in detail last week. Who made the universe? Kind of filling in your blanks as we go. We're looking at those first set now. Who made the universe? Well, the biblical answer is radically different than all the answers of other ancient religions. Remember, in other ancient creation stories, it was a host of gods, a pantheon of of lesser gods, finite gods who are at war with each other. And that's the story of creation. Creation is a battleground for these lesser gods. Often in many of the stories, earth is the corpse of a killed God. That's a common one. The Bible says no. There is only one God. One great, almighty, sovereign God who simply speaks and the universe spins into existence. The earth, the Bible says, is very good. It's not a battleground. It's not a corpse. It's wonderful. So the Bible's answer is radically different. It's a great, almighty, sovereign God who made the universe and it is very good. And that leads to the second question. Why did he make it? Remember what the answer is in so many of the other ancient creation stories. Why did he make the world? Well, there's a pantheon of gods and it's by accident, ultimately, in all of them. In the human race, what are we in those other ancient creation stories? Well, we have no value because humans in other ancient creation stories are an accident of divine warfare or the product of divine sex or very frequently created to do labor for the gods. We're slaves. That's your purpose. In all these other creation stories, the Bible says no. You're not made as slave labor. You're not an accident. You are made in the image of God and everything else was made for you. And that's the answer. Why did God create the universe? For you. This whole universe exists for us. We humans, we are the pinnacle of all of creation. The rest of the world is described as good. We are described as very good because we alone are made in the image of God. God creates all of the world. Why? To be a home for you. Remember, Genesis 1, it's all about God forming and filling the earth to make it a good and wonderful home for you. Creation is a gift of love from God to the human race. That's the why. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to be human. So all of creation is for us. It's a gift meant for us. Why would God give us this incredible gift? Because we alone are made in the image of God. Unlike all other life forms, we are made in God's own image. What does that mean? That's an incredibly important truth. 
That is actually, I would, I would argue that that is the single most important thing about you. More important than your wealth, your gender, your, your education level, your race, your family background. Most important thing about you, you are made in the image of God. What does that mean though? Well, if you study the rest of the Bible, you'll learn that it means three things. Conveniently for my handout, they all start with the letter R. So here you go. Number one, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? First part, you have the ability to relate to God. You can have a relationship with your creator that no other living thing can. John chapter 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, and here's the key phrase, children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Not slaves of God, children of God. You get to be a child of God in God's own family. No dog gets that. There's no dog that's a child of God. No, only humans get to be in a familial relationship with God. So that's the first part of the image of God. You were made to be in God's own family. You can have a relationship with him. Second part of the image of God in the human race, we are able to reflect God's character. We can reflect God's morality, his righteousness, his love, his justice to the rest of creation. No other living thing can do that. So here's what it says to us in 1 Peter. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Do do you realize that verse cannot be applied to a dog or a cat or a cow? Why? Because nothing they do can be righteous or sinful. I have a dog. If if my dog chooses today, I'm going to go outside and play and and tear up the ground out there. Or decides, well, no, I'm going to stay in here and tear up the rug in here. Which of those is sinful? Neither. There is no sin for a dog. There's no righteousness for a dog. There's no morality for a dog. Other living things don't have the ability to reflect God's moral character, but you do. You can make moral choices. That's actually the explanation for a really weird thing God does in the next chapter. You may know where it's headed. God is going to plant a forbidden tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where does he put it? Right in front of Adam and Eve. Right in the center of the Garden of Eden. There it is. And, and I used to look at that and think, well, that's dumb. If it's a forbidden tree, don't put it right in front of them. Put it like up on Mount Everest. Or, hey, you're God. Can't you put it like on Mars where they can't get to it? Why did he put it right in front of them? Because without the opportunity to make a moral choice, they could not be human. Be no different than dog or cat. They had to have the gift to make a choice. They had to have the opportunity to make a free moral choice that had real consequences. That's how they get to be in the image of God. So the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is actually a gift. It lets them be fully human. It lets them be in the image of God. So that's the second part of the image of God in us. Third part, we are able to radiate God's glory. We're able to radiate God's glory with our physical bodies. It says in Psalm 8, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You crown him with glory and majesty. That is not just metaphor. That's not just figurative language. God created your body to reflect his glory and majesty in a literal way, a physical way. How do I know that? Well, When Moses got to actually be in God's presence in the tabernacle, the tent in the Old Testament, and then he walked out, how did he look? He shined like a light bulb. It freaked everybody out. So they made him wear a veil because they were so scared. When Jesus and Moses and Elijah hang out on the mountain, how do they look? 
They shine like the sun. They're so bright that Peter and John and James cannot look at them. Daniel 12 says that when you are resurrected, your physical body will shine like the stars in the heavens. There will be no need for sun or moon in the new heavens and the new earth because you'll be there. And you will radiate God's own glory. Your physical body was designed to shine with God's actual light. Why doesn't it? We'll get there next. The whole revolt and fall thing. But it will one day. In the resurrection. That's why your body is valuable. It was designed by God to radiate his actual glorious light. So the image of God in us. It is our unique. None of these three things are true of any other living things on earth. We're able to relate to God. Reflect God's character. And radiate God's glory. That's what makes us in his image. And the result of all of these things. The result of being made in the image of God. Is that we can rule God's world. You notice, when God makes the world and he speaks to humanity, he says to to Adam and Eve, fill the earth, spread out, fill it, and as you fill it, subdue it. What does that mean? Well, here's what I think is going on. God plants this beautiful garden of Eden, and he places Adam and Eve there, and then he says, fill and spread and subdue. I think God's plan was that Adam and Eve would spread the garden of Eden throughout the entire earth, maybe throughout the entire universe. I don't know. But that's what you were created to do, to rule God's world and bring about its flourishing. You were created to be like God and fill creation with his glory and his beauty that just begun in the Garden of Eden. You were created to rule. That's so crucial. So many people, they diminish the Christian life into this thought of, well, it's all about going to heaven when I die. My purpose on earth is to live and reproduce and work, and then I die, and then I go to heaven. No. Christianity is not about getting to heaven. You do get to go to heaven if you trust in Jesus. But the purpose of your life is to live for God now. To rule this planet for God now. To fill this world with his glory now. God wants to do so much with you because you were designed to be a king or queen on this planet. Filling it with his glory and ruling it on his behalf. And that leads us to the theological big idea of the Bible. If you want like the the storyline of the whole Bible from the first page to the last page, it is this. This is what God is doing. God is glorifying himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity. Glorifying himself. God is sharing. He is revealing his love and his grace and his power and his wisdom. How is he doing that? By by growing his kingdom here on earth. And he's doing it through us. Through human beings. So I love this. Whereas other ancient religions talk about your purpose in life is to be slave labor for the God or just an accident. Christianity, the Bible, it says no. You were made in God's own image to rule his world and fill it with his glory. It is very fitting that we're talking about this on this Sunday, January 20th. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is tagged to the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. This is our answer to the question, why does an unborn baby matter? Because he or she is already made in the image of God, just like you and me. They already have value. Are they viable outside? That's not the question. They already have infinite value. That's true of the unborn baby. It's true of the 120-year-old who can't get out of bed, who can't feed himself or herself. Why should that person still exist? Because they're made in the image of God. That's what unites all of us together. It's a perfect thing to talk about when we're celebrating MLK Day tomorrow. What unites white and black together? We're made in the image of God. It's what gives infinite value to all human beings. 
That's the core of who and what you are. You're made in the image of God to rule God's universe for his glory. That's the story of the human race. That's the purpose of our existence. This world, it belonged to God, and then he gave it to us as a gift to fill and to rule. And so the big idea of chapter 1, the first part of the story, God has lovingly created humanity to bear his image and rule his world, which he gave us as a gift. So this is a really fun chapter, and then it's done. It doesn't last very long. Two actual literal chapters of your Bible, and then we get to the next chapter in our story, which we call Revolt. Revolt is where the wheels come off. This part of the story reminds me of the Lord of the Rings movies, the trilogy. I love them. I love watching them. My wife likes the first five minutes. That's all. Because the first five minutes, you are in Hobbiton, and it's really nice there. And they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're having a party, and they're singing and dancing. And she loves that. But then after five minutes, the ring enters the picture, and and the wheels come off. And for like the next nine hours, you're watching countless creatures hack each other to death in this global battle between good or evil. And guess what? That's the Bible. That is the story of Scripture. You get Hobbiton for five minutes, and then it's over because of revolt. In this next chapter, revolt, evil enters into the story of the human race and the wheels come off. So, let's look at chapter 3. We're going to look at the first seven verses. Right before this, everything was very good. Now look what happens. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they, were, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. In an incredibly short amount of time, humanity revolts against God. Now let's think about what sets this up. We talked about the gift of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That it's, it's this gracious opportunity for Adam and Eve to be fully human by making a moral choice to obey, to be righteous. God laid that out in chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2, verse 16. Here is God's command, the one and only command. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Surely die in English and Hebrew it is you will die, die. Meaning you will experience death in all its forms. At first Adam and Eve obey. We don't know how long that lasted. But at some point, beginning of chapter 3, our enemy enters the story. This is not a snake. We know from other passages in scripture this is Satan inhabiting a body of a snake. This is Satan, our great enemy. What do we know about him? Not actually a lot, because the Bible wasn't written about him, it was written about you. What we do know from the limited passages that we have is that Satan was created an angelic being who was perfect and beautiful and powerful and in the presence of God in heaven. At some point in the past, long ago, Satan became enamored with his own beauty. 
He saw how wonderful he is. And he gave in to the temptation of pride. He decided, I'm so beautiful that I should be worshiping me. And and all of you other angelic beings, you should be worshiping me, not God. He wanted to make himself God instead of God. So he gave in to pride in that moment. He fell and he became God's enemy. And from that point on, he was bent on the destruction of all that God loves. Well, God loves us. And so Satan enters into the creation of humanity to tempt us. And interestingly, he's going to tempt Adam and Eve in the very same way that he was tempted. When, when you look at the temptation, it's not about fruit. You know, like they had fruit all over the place. It's not like it's some great apple. What is the temptation? It's pride. You will become like God. That's actually the root of all sin. The sin you struggle with, the sin I struggle with, what's at the bottom of all of it? Pride. Will we trust God and God's commands and let him be God and submit to him? Or will we decide that we know what's best for us? And we'll take the place of God in our lives. Pride is at the root of all sin. Adam and Eve, they, they hear that temptation. You can be like God and they give in. They fall into sin. Now they assume that by taking of the apple they would get divinity. But God warned them, no, you will get death in that moment. And that is what they get. Death enters into the human race, into human experience. And death in the Bible, when God said, you shall die, die, you shall surely die. Death in Hebrew is way wider than it is in English. We just mean like corpse falling over. They mean a lot of things. Death means all of the negative consequences that come as a result of sin. And so we're going to walk through these consequences that death brings into the human race in this part of the story. So the first consequence we're going to get in verse 7. Let's reread that just for a second. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. As soon as they have sinned, the first consequence is coming. The key is to notice God hasn't shown up yet. God isn't showing up in judgment yet. This is just a natural consequence of sin. It gives birth to shame. What's, what's key here? You read a lot about nakedness in this part of Genesis and people get hung up on it. It's not about nakedness. Nakedness is a symbol for what? For living without shame. That's the whole point. They were unashamed. Adam and Eve didn't even have a word for shame. They didn't know what it was. They couldn't imagine. Can you imagine living without the concept of shame? How great would that be? They had that. But they gave in to sin. And instantly shame results. And so what are they doing with the clothes? Again, it's not about nakedness. It's about I want to cover myself so no one can see my shame that I feel this new thing in me that I hate. So sin gives birth to shame instantly. Next verse, look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid myself. Sin gives birth to a second result instantly, fear. I never knew fear before this moment. I don't know that I had a word for it. Fear was non-existent in creation before this moment. But all of a sudden now, they know fear. They fear punishment, so they hide themselves. Third result, look at verse 11. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And what is this? This is the birth of blame. 
All of a sudden, human beings begin to blame one another. There was nothing but perfection in relationships. Now there's blame between people. What I want you to notice is God has not judged at all yet. There's no God speaking up and rendering judgment. These are just the unavoidable natural consequences of sin in this universe. If a person in this universe gives into sin, you will get those three things instantly and there's nothing you can do about it. So when believers or unbelievers wonder, why should I not sin? That's why. You are no more likely to escape those consequences than you are the law of gravity. It's built into the fabric of the universe. You sin, you will have these three things in your life. But now God has shown up. And God begins to render judgment and things get worse. And so look with me. We're going to skip a couple verses that we'll come back to in a moment. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the entrance of all God meant by death. God is unpacking this phrase death. There's, there's multiple deaths that happen in this curse. The first is death of labor. By labor I mean work. Some people think of, that work is a, the result of the fall into sin. No. You were not created to be bored. You were created to do good things, to work this world for God. He gave the gift of work, but at this moment, work becomes cursed. Each person's labor is now cursed. For Eve, it, it was childbirth. Now, it will be associated with pain and risk and death. For Adam, it was to, to work the land, to have all this fruit. I mean, it used to be work was just like, reach out a hand, there's an apple, boom, we're good. No more. Now he'll have to work the ground by the sweat of his brow, working hard against nature, not with nature, to bring about a meager existence. That's all his hope is. So this is the death of labor, second death of relationships. Now Adam and Eve are in conflict with one another. Humanity and the planet are in conflict with one another. There's death of all of these relationships. Third, death of our bodies. This is the entrance of literal death into the human race. Before this moment, we would say that Adam and Eve were created to be provisionally immortal. They were immortal so long as they lived in the Garden of Eden with God. Being in God's presence in the Garden of Eden miraculously preserved them from the principle of entropy God designed into the universe. Everything decays. Everything falls apart. How do Adam and Eve not? Because they're in God's presence in the Garden, but no more. They're kicked out of the garden, and now the natural processes of entropy and decay begin, and they die. So that's the entrance of physical death, finally. Worst of all, death of our spirits. Now, they don't know a lot about it at this point. They know that they are excluded from God's presence in the garden, but they can't yet grasp how bad this is. Paul, though, unpacks it later. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, he describes spiritual death to us. And he says, And you were, all of the human race, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That means you were slaves of sin. You could not resist sin. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom you, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
No longer are we born children of God. We're born children of wrath. Slaves to sin under God's punishment. Under God's wrath. Death is as bad as it could possibly be. This is horrible news. And yet right in the middle of all of this horrible news, there is hope. I love it. Right in the middle, there is hope is verses 14 and 15. So look back at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now at first, this is just about snakes and humans and why we don't really like each other. It's just talking about snakes. My son reads this, he's nine years old, and he wonders, so did snakes have like legs before this? And now, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with snakes here. But for about a verse and a half, it's just about snakes and humans not getting along. But right in the middle of verse 15, in Hebrew, the pronoun shifts. It goes from plural, talking about all snakes and all humans, to one. And I've underlined it here for you. So it's right there, the second half. After talking about all snakes and all humans, God switches the pronouns to singular, he one human male child of Eve shall bruise you, not all snakes, but this one who is Satan. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What do we have here? We have one male human killing Satan and at the same time being killed by Satan. Because if a serpent bites you in days before anti-venom, you're going to die. It's a death blow. Two death blows here is what we have. This is the first promise of the gospel. That's why we have hope. Right in the middle of the curse, God makes the first promise of the gospel. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion, the first good news. God promises that somehow there will be a male child of Eve who will grow up to crush our enemy and deliver us from sin. But in the process, he will die. He will give his life for us so that we can be free. Now, they don't know the name Jesus yet. They don't know anything about the cross and resurrection. None of that's revealed yet. But now they have hope. There is a male child of Eve coming. And actually, from this moment on, humans begin to think, if they have a little boy, is my boy the one who will deliver the human race from our enemy? So from this moment on, there is hope. But that hope is still a long ways off. Okay, redemption, that promise that has been given, it is still a long ways from coming. In the meantime, things get way worse. So in the next chapter, we get Cain and Abel. Humanity goes from stealing an apple to killing each other. We're very quick learners. We fall into violence. By chapter 6, the violence is so widespread that God hits the reset button. He brings a flood. He delivers only Noah and his family. And, And murder, violence is the reason for that flood. Noah and his family are delivered, but in almost no time, they fall back into sin and they end up at the Tower of Babel. Which, what sin is that all about? It's pride again. Let me build a tower so tall I can be with God in heaven. I can take his place. God shows up and he says, okay, so as long as I let you guys all work together, like united human race, you unite in rebellion. So I'm going to divide you. And so he divides one united humanity into all the different people groups, all the different languages, so he can save one group at a time. And that becomes the plan of God in the next chapter. So, chapter 2 is done, the revolt. In a very short amount of time, we have gone from paradise to Mad Max on the planet Earth. It has gotten really awful, but God is going to begin to turn things around in the next chapter, the chapter of promise. So, let's move on to promise. 
God doesn't give up on us, though we deserve it. God begins a plan of redemption, a plan to fix what humanity has broken. And that plan begins with a promise to restore humanity through the family of a man named Abraham. Now, if if you're not familiar with Abraham, short of Jesus, he is the most important person in the Bible. If if you're only going to know one person other than Jesus in the Bible, you need to know Abraham. He's huge. Can't, can't be bigger than him. He's massive. Incredibly important to the story of the Bible. So we're going to spend some time looking at Abraham. We meet Abraham in Genesis 11. So look at the end of Genesis 11. We'll pick it up in verse 27. It says, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram there is Abraham. He just had a shorter name at this point in time. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, who will become Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In this story of Abraham... We learn a lot about him right from the beginning. Um, We meet Abraham around 2000 BC. We now have a date for the first two chapters. We have no date. We don't know exactly when they happened. But Abraham, we know. He was born in about 2090 BC. He was born in the city of Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq. God calls him to leave Ur and his family and his friends and his home and his language group and move along that line all the way to what we call the promised land, the land where the garden would have been, the land where Israel is planted throughout the Old Testament, God's land. When we meet Abraham, he has two problems right off the bat. Number one, he is an idolater. The entire city of Ur was built around the worship of the moon. Like the architecture, all of it was designed to help you worship the moon. And we know from the book of Joshua that Abraham and his family participated in the worship of the moon. So he was an idolater, and that's really significant because it tells us that right from the beginning, our God is a God of grace. He does not choose people who are worthy because Abraham was not worthy. Abraham didn't worship God. Abraham didn't obey God. He didn't know God. And yet God in grace chose him anyways. So we see God and grace choose Abraham, but Abraham has a problem. Remember, God's goal for the human race is that we would live in his image. We would reflect his character to the world and thereby glorify him. That's God's plan, but Abraham's not doing a good job of that. He doesn't even know God yet. So first problem, he's an idolater who is not glorifying God with his life. Second problem, he has no kids. He's childless. He doesn't have a son. That is hard at any time in human history. It is a curse in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a person's value and security were wrapped up in the children they had, especially their sons. Abraham has none, and he's 75 years old at this point in time. That's old. And so that's a curse upon his life. 
He's childless. So the story of Abraham is about God fixing those two problems over the course of about 11 chapters of your Bible. God's going to solve both of those issues. And, and his solution begins with this promise we read, beginning of chapter 12. God lays out a promise to Abraham. This will become what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Covenants are frequent in scripture. A covenant is just a contract between two people. In this case, it's between God and Abraham, this binding covenant. It's one of four crucial covenants in the Bible. They're all on your chart there at the top. The Abrahamic covenant, crucial thing. God lays out this promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, if you will leave Ur of the Chaldeans and come to the land which I will show you, then I'll give you three things. What are those three things? Number one, I'll give you land. And God specifies the land, particularly in chapter 13 and chapter 15. He gives us the boundaries. We learn that the promised land, as it's called in scripture, is everything from the Nile River in the south to Euphrates River in the north. Far bigger than Israel has ever possessed. All the way from the river of the south to the river of the north. All of it will belong to Abraham. It's the same land as best we can tell where the Garden of Eden was. It's God's land, the focus of the biblical story. All of that land is promised to Abraham. In addition, he has promised seed. That means descendants and blessing. God will bless him with fame and wealth and security and success. And the greatest promise of all, the, the, really the most important part of the Abrahamic covenant, is that last little bit, bit we read right at the end of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What God is doing is he's taking that promise it'll be a, a male child from Eve and he's narrowing the funnel. Not just any child of Eve, but it will be through the family of Abraham. That this blessing to the human race will come who will destroy our enemy and deliver us from sin. So now we know the blessing to all people groups is coming through this one family. So Abraham is given these amazing promises. In chapter 15, they're formalized in kind of a ceremony into a covenant. But something even more significant happens in chapter 15. Turn there. You learn something really important about your life. You learn about how salvation works. In chapter 15, we get really the first declaration of how sinning people are saved in God's sight. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15. And he, that is God, took him, that is Abraham, outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That phrase, reckoned it to him as righteousness, that's the word justify. This is justification. And Paul will take verse 6 and he'll quote it multiple times in the New Testament to say, That's how salvation has always worked. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, well, Jews, they were saved by the law. They were saved by circumcision. They were saved by all these animals they sacrificed at the temple. No to all of that. They were saved the same way you are, by faith alone. That is always how salvation has worked. It's by believing in the promises of God. Now, what in particular did Abraham have faith in? Not Jesus. He hadn't heard that name yet. Abraham had a very simple faith. He believed that this God, this sovereign God existed, had made promises to him and would keep those promises. And for him, that was enough. That was the required content of faith to be justified or saved. For us, we know a lot more than Abraham did. So the required content of our faith is in Jesus. We must believe he lived for us, died for us, rose from the dead, so we could have eternal life as a free gift. The key is to notice, though, Salvation has always been by faith alone from the first page of the Bible to the last. It's only the content of faith that's changed with time. 
So Abraham is saved, he's justified, but he still has these same two problems in his life. He still doesn't have a child with Sarah, he still doesn't have a son, and he's still not reflecting God's character. He's still not glorifying God. Because early and late in his story, both in chapters 12 and chapter 20, Abraham gives in to fear and he does a horrible thing. He becomes afraid that a king is going to come kill him. And so he decides, he takes his wife, who is very beautiful, and he passes her off as his sister and gives her to be a concubine to that king he's afraid of. Horrible thing. Risks the whole promise. How are you going to have a son if you just gave away your wife? God has to step in both times supernaturally and deliver Sarah. So Abraham, he does some good things, but a lot of bad things. He has a checkered story. He is not yet glorifying God. So God still has the two problems to fix. He does that at the end of the story. In chapter 21, God gives Abraham Isaac. When Sarah is 90 years old, she has a son. It's Isaac, the son of promise. So this incredible gift, obviously a supernatural miracle. A 90-year-old woman can have this child. Abraham now has a son he's longed for. That's the first problem solved. Now the second problem, God is going to fix that in chapter 22. So you can turn there. Chapter 22 is the climax of the story, one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, incredibly significant. In chapter 22, God is going to fix Abraham's second problem, that he wasn't glorifying God, he wasn't acting like God. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. This command is unthinkable. God says, this son you've waited a whole lifetime for, I want you to go kill him and burn him with fire. Unbelievably hard command. And yet Abraham obeys. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. There's no delay. Instantly he's obeying. And he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Can you imagine? He had to travel with Isaac for three days, knowing what he was about to do. Imagine how the campfires were at night then. Isaac doesn't know yet. Abraham's not told anybody. But Abraham's making a campfire with his son, knowing in just a couple days he's going to be the one to kill and burn his son. How that would haunt you. And yet Abraham doesn't hesitate. He keeps going. Look at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham obeys completely, all the way to the last possible moment. His muscles are straining, the knife is about to plunge into his son, and God stops him. And, and we have to ask, why? Why would God do this. Well, God was always going to spare Isaac because God loves our kids more than we do. God doesn't want us to kill our kids. That was never going to happen. So why did God give Abraham this impossible command? The answer is that this was the opportunity that Abraham needed 
to show the world how much he had grown. This was Abraham's moment in the sun to step up and show the world how he had grown to follow and trust and obey God. And it is remarkable. This becomes the moment that makes Abraham famous. Did you realize that over half of the earth's current population regards Abraham as one of the greatest heroes of all time? It's not just Christians. Who else? Jews and Muslims. We all revere Abraham as the greatest example of faith, short of Jesus, if you're Christian. Why? Because of chapter 22. Because he was willing to follow God in an impossibly difficult command. And we look at that and say, wow, what a model of obedience. What a model of trust in God came through for him. So this is Abraham's moment when he gets to be what God designed him to be. He gets to be God's image bearer, reflecting to the world the morality, the righteousness, the love of God, the obedience of God. So Abraham gets to fulfill the purpose for which God designed him. And and it teaches us a lot about what God is doing in our lives. The story of Abraham isn't just about God's promise. It's also about God's process of transforming Abraham into his likeness. We see God at work through these promises, but doing something amazing in Abraham's life, growing him to be a man of incredible faith and obedience who would glorify God to the world. And you learn something from that. What you learn is that God's gifts are always designed to help us grow. When God gives us good things, when he does good things in our lives, it's not just because he's nice, which he is, but it's so that we can grow to be more like Jesus. So we can become all that God has designed us to be. Because Abraham obeyed and grew in obedience and honored God, God does a remarkable thing in the next couple verses. Look at verse 16. God says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What's so remarkable here is that for the first time anywhere in the Bible, verse 16, God swears. By myself I have sworn. In the Bible, if God wants to tell you that something's going to happen no matter what, the best way he can do that is with an oath upon himself. That is the highest of the high. God wants to, there's no way this will ever change. Nothing can ever take it away. He swears upon himself that it will come true. Because Abraham obeyed, God swears an oath that makes the covenant irrevocable. That's a major moment because from this oath, when God swears upon himself, what is the rest of the Bible about? It's about God keeping this promise. And it's remarkable to me that this promise is so irrevocable because if you know where this story is headed, Abraham's descendants are going to do some bad stuff. Horrible stuff. And yet never will God take the covenant back. Even when Abraham's descendants kill God's own son, still he will not revoke the covenant. Why? Because Abraham obeyed. And you learn something from that. You learn the importance of obedience in your life. Notice Abraham was going to heaven after Genesis 15 for sure. He he was saved. He was justified. So even if he would have disobeyed God in Genesis 22, Abraham would still be in heaven. But what would have happened to the covenant? We don't know. We just know he wouldn't have it anymore. Maybe it would have passed to Isaac. Maybe God would have been done with this family and moved on to a different family. 
God uses Abraham's obedience to change human history. He uses Abraham's obedience to bring blessing for literally 4,000 years so far of his descendants. The point there is that, yes, you are saved by faith alone, but your obedience matters. God uses your obedience to change the destiny of the human race. It is incredibly important that you obey God. So if you want your life to count, if you want to be a man or a woman who changes the world for the better, a man or a woman who leads people to God, a man or a woman who matters, you must obey. Faith alone gets you to heaven, but obedience is required to live a life that matters. Abraham did obey, and so things worked out great for him. But here's the irony of the story. As best we can tell, on this same mountain, Mount Moriah, Abraham's son Isaac was spared. God's own son Jesus was not. As best we can tell, the place where Jesus was actually crucified was either exactly or near the spot where Isaac was spared. What's ironic is that Abraham's son Isaac is delivered. A substitute is provided. When God's own son was on the altar about to be sacrificed in that same geographic location, no substitute was provided. I I, I just admit, God the Father delivers, he spares Abraham's son because God wouldn't do that to us, but he chooses to do it to himself. He chooses to suffer the penalty. Jesus willingly chose not to reach out and grab a ram because he could have, he's God. He chose to stay on the altar and to die in our place. And what that tells you is that you just thought this story was about Abraham and Isaac. It seemed to be about Abraham and Isaac, but it wasn't. It was always about Jesus. That's what all this has been about. It's all been leading up to and preparing us for Jesus. It's laying the foundation for Jesus to come. The Abrahamic covenant, not about Abraham. It's about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the one who brings all that blessing to the families of the world. It's always been about Jesus, who, unlike Isaac, was not spared when he stood on the altar. And so, I've held you long. i got to let you go. So I'm going to leave you with this homework. I want you to go this week and read those passages, key passages for each of these key words, and I want you to think about those reflection questions and let them sink in so that you can appreciate what God is saying in this story. Let me pray for us really quickly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to see your story playing out in Scripture. We praise you that you are a God of of an incredible plan, incredible grace, incredible love and wisdom and power. We look forward to seeing how the story plays out next week. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who it's all about. In his name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.